What will people say of me When I'm only just a memory When I'm home where my soul belongs Was I love When no one else would show up Was I Jesus to the least of us Was my worship more than just a song
Good morning. My name is Lara Dunshee, and it's nice to see you all. Can you remember the last time the Lord blessed you with an unexpected and unlikely friendship? For me, it was just this past summer, and this is how it happened. A stranger chose to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And because of her obedience, remarkable blessings spread and flowed through her family to ours. Her doings left an indelible mark of God's gracious word of truth. Meeting a person living their life like that refreshed my faith. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you for ordering the events in every woman's life here to be with us this morning, to be under your word. Thank you that you alone perfect and mature our faith as we submit to your word of truth. I ask that your wisdom would cover each portion of today so that we'll come away with a more complete understanding of how we're to reflect you in all we do. Stir us to become doers of your word until everything we say and do points to you. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> My summer found friend has this quote as her pinned tweet. A true teacher is more, much more a learner than a speaker. A true teacher is much more a learner than a speaker. I think that describes James. He, he's an author and teacher, but he was a learner first. He seems to be more about sharing the truths he's learned than simply listing commands for us to follow. There are plenty of those, but his, his voice seems to come through as a learner that's sharing what he's learned. And if this is indeed James, the brother of Jesus, and Cinda, wherever you are, your uh, research convinced me. Oh, there you are. Um, James then had his unique exposure to Christ and his complex journey to faith in Christ seemed to have taught him how to humbly serve the implanted word of truth. In other words, James is simply teaching us the truths he has learned. The last time we met, um, Joanne covered verses 2 through 18 of chapter 1. And that section finished with a thought that I think we should revisit. The verse reads, The Father chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may, might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. I want to look at the meaning of the word W-O-R-D. That's kind of hard to say, the meaning of the word word. In both verse 18 of the previous section of our, our lesson and verse 21 in this lesson, the Greek word for word is logos, the divine expression, Christ. That word means Christ, the divine expression as expressed through Christ, the logos of truth. I couldn't help myself. We have to read 1 John, John 1, 1 through 17 because it elaborates so beautifully on the meaning of that word. In the beginning was the word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The original readers of this letter, those groundbreaking first fruits, had received the word of truth for salvation. They had been justified to their Father through the finished work of Christ. It's the same today. To all who receive him, the Logos, to all believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. It's from this position of rebirth, regeneration, newness of life, that James moves from verse 18 on to our passage today in verse 19. His thoughts continue. Having stated the foundation of their faith in the preceding verses, he moves to address how their conduct should reflect the implanted word of truth. John MacArthur gave this summary. This passage raises this issue, how the word goes in and how the word comes out. So as we work through the passage, look for examples of receiving and responding to the word. Listen to how James says it should go in and how it should go out. Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This verse appears to be useful as a standalone mantra. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Yep. That applies in a lot of instances. Pretty universal application there. But if we lift it out of the context to stand alone, the intended connection to the aforementioned word of truth, verse 18, and the about to be mentioned implanted word, verse 21, can be lost. As Stephen Cole writes, while these words obviously apply to our personal relationships, which James will address in chapter four, the primary application in the context regards our response to God's word. How are we to receive or accept the word? His three phrases, quick to hear, quick to listen. That's a continuous command. If you've never heard me speak before, you're going to hear some grammar along the way. Thanks, Mom. It's a continuous command. A receptive heart consistently and eagerly opens its ears to hear. It literally means be quick to the hearing. Be quick to the hearing yesterday, be quick to the hearing today, be quick to the hearing tomorrow. Pursue every opportunity to put yourself under the proclamation of the word. You'll remember that James is writing to people under trials who are facing trials. So being eager to listen to the word of truth is how 
Anyone in the midst of trials should approach receiving the word. You're in a trial, you're eager to go to it. Matthew Henry states, instead of censuring God under our trials, let us open our ears and hearts to hear what he will say to us through his word. We should not pray so much for the removal of an affliction as for the wisdom to make a right use of it. Which takes us back to verse 5 in the previous lesson, that if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. So our response in trials should be here and asking for the wisdom to make a right use of the trial. Back in verse 1 of the passage, James opened the letter by identifying himself as a servant. Servants are quick to hear. They're quick to listen for their master's voice and respond to it. If we're to function as servants of God, we must begin by listening quickly to the word so that we may serve the word. The second way we receive, we're supposed to be slow to speak. Now, I find it very interesting that scholars disagree and have two interpretations of what three words mean, slow to speak, but they do. And I like both of them, so I'm going to share what I heard, what I learned. Some scholars believe that this is a prelude to chapter 3, which we'll get to, and that it, chapter 3 addresses being slow to speak as a teacher of God's word. Reluctance to speak the scripture, a holy fear. Kent Hughes writes, it means that we should show respect for God's word by listening and not being quick to speak. Faulty listening leads to wrong conclusions, inaccurate judgments, poor advice, and sharp speech. That's the one side. Other scholars believe that this command confronts the believer who resists being silent before the Lord. When the word confronts her ways, she's quick to argue with the Lord or find excuses for why this doesn't apply to her. I like what Warren Wearsby said. He's in, he, he was viewing the passage that way, and he said, too many times we argue with God's word, if not audibly, at least in our hearts and minds. So whether this passage warns against being a careless proclaimer of God's word, or it's a warning against being a contentious listener, I think the point remains that hasty speech is to be avoided. Hasty speech either produces anger or is a product of anger, which brings us to the final command in the series of three, slow to become angry. The first two admonitions, quick to listen, slow to speak, both require an attitude of submission. This third addresses submission as well, but it addresses it because anger is an emotional response that directly opposes submission. Anger reflects a heart that wants its own way. I have one of those. The word James uses for anger here, though, very interestingly, is not about an outburst. This is not a tantrum. No way. I'm not doing it. Could be. But it gets a deeper meaning for the word of anger. It means a deep-seated resentment. 
Think about what we learned from James 1, 3, and 4. Trials. Trials test us for the purpose of completing our maturity. This is so, thinking about that made me ask myself, how do I accept or receive the word at the onset of a trial? How about in the middle of a trial? What about if the trial has gone on way longer than I, than I would prefer? What about if the trial has reset my reality? Perhaps even permanently. What about then? Am I receiving the word with an open heart or deep-seated resentment? Considering that question, oddly enough, made me think of a Hanna-Barbera cartoon from my childhood. I know some of you don't know what Hanna-Barbera <laughs> is. And yes, I looked it up on the lovely internet. And yes, it was before at least half of this room was born. So that's okay. Don't worry, I'm gonna fill you in. <clears throat> there was a cartoon character in the Dark Ages named Muttley the dog. Very short-lived little guy, but, and despite perpetual trials, Muttley plowed ahead with his tasks. But that dog was constantly muttering under his breath. So like Muttley, I may keep moving, but while I'm muttering in my heart against my circumstances, I'm not learning much. If I'm muttering, I'm not trying to listen. And I'm definitely not being slow to speak. An angry, muttering, spirit, that kind of spirit never functions as a listening, teachable spirit. Anger stands in opposition to submission. Verse 20 goes ahead and gives the reason for being slow to anger. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It does not produce the righteousness of God. <clears throat> John MacArthur restates these verses this way, as if James is speaking. I want you to hear the word and be eager to hear it. I want you to be very re reluctant to be put in the place to speak it and very slow to boil inside with resentment when you hear it. James wants the righteousness of God to increase in his brothers and sisters, and so he continues sharing what he's learned in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This verse is not implying that in order for the implanted word to save your soul, you must get rid of all the moral filth and prevalent evil. Now, it's saying that the desire to rid yourself of the filthiness comes from humbly accepting the word planted in you. In exchange for your will, you accept and receive his. I, I like to encourage myself with the words of Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, 
and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Justification is accomplished at the time of belief. Verse 18. A believer is eternally covered by the righteousness of Christ. But filthiness and wickedness remain a reality in our daily lives. One blunt preacher said, a receptive heart clears the crud of sin. For the word to produce the righteousness of God, sin must be recognized and cleared out. The Greek word for filthiness, uh, which you may have seen in your, if you saw the ESV study notes, is the word that's also used for dirty clothes. Clothes covered in filth and scum from working in the world, from exposure to the world. And that same word came to metaphorically refer to moral vice or sinful filth. The task of ridding ourselves of all filthiness and rampant wickedness is overwhelming, seems insurmountable. And honestly, I think it could leave us all in a puddle of defeat. Yet, there's good news. That isn't the tenor of this verse. The grammar of this sentence helps bring clarity. For those of you who thought that was the dumbest thing ever, grammar, really helpful for understanding. And in Greek, it's such a rich language. I wish I knew it. I don't. I get all this from reading. I don't know Greek. But I want to look at another version. of In the NASB, it uses the syntax grammatical structure that's helpful. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. John MacArthur broke the sentence down and pointed out that putting aside is a participle. I know you all want to write that down. Um, <laughs> But the important part is that it's not the main verb in the verse. The main verb in the verse is receive or accept in humility. Receiving the word with humility, meekness, gentleness, a willing spirit, is the call to action and the command in that verse. Putting away is the outward sign of humbly receiving. So what is humbly receiving? The Greek word for humility contains the idea of strength in submission or strength under control. Strength under control, not your control. Strength under the Holy Spirit's control. The same word in Greek is, was used to describe Alexander the Great's horse, which was powerfully strong, but totally submissive and responsive to his master's touch. The putting aside, the throwing off of the dirty clothes becomes a natural response as we submit to the direction of our master. Matthew Henry restates verse 20 in this way, laying aside the disorders of a corrupt heart, which would prejudice it against the word and ways of God, humbly accept the word implanted in you, which can save you, so that the fruit produced will not be according to our sour nature, but according to the nature of the gospel which is implanted in our souls. The final phrase of verse 21, which is able to save your souls, which can save you, 
We need to handle that carefully. This doesn't mean you can lift it out of context and say that the implanted word can save you if it feels like it, or it can save you if you've cleaned up your act enough to be acceptable. It means the implanted word alone is able to save you. Douglas Moo, who's, who is, I, I'm getting excited about learning about his uh, commentaries. I hadn't known him before. He says the phrase, save your soul, presents the view of salvation as the entire process of a Christian life. And the process culminates in our ultimate deliverance from sin and death. And that takes place at the time of Christ's return in glory. There's a future orientation to the phrase. So the implanted word remains the only source of my justification, verse 18, my sanctification, and my glorification in the future. <clears throat> the next four verses, we are making progress, ladies. Don't glaze over on me. James draws a picture of what it looks like to act on the implanted word. He offers practical advice for approaching life as a cycle of sanctification. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Truly listening to the word with humility leads to a changed heart. A changed heart leads to changed actions. And that combination, hearing and doing, brings the blessings associated with obedience. I thought it was kind of, I looked at this passage, those few verses, and saw two categories of people that James is describing. The hearer only and the hearer and doer. James categorizes the hearer only as one who deceives herself. She deludes herself. The Greek, Greek verb, paralogizomai, I looked it up, and then they, there's this great thing on the internet. You can learn how to pronounce anything. It makes you sound like you are just silly something. <laughs> but you should have heard me, I, and you should see my notes. I've got the emphasis in bold and underlined, so I'll say the right thing. Paralogizomai. Okay, it, that verb only appears twice in the entire New Testament, here and in Colossians 2, verse 4. The word means to cheat or deceive by false reasoning. It's used in mathematics to refer to a miscalculation. John MacArthur writes, the hearer only is self-deceived through fallacious reasoning, application of a mistaken belief. James uses a mirror to illustrate how we can deceive ourselves with false reasoning. This word picture works almost too well for me. I can envision myself looking in the mirror, adjusting my posture, pulling my abs back toward my spine, tilting my head to a better angle, much better. Yeah, that's good. Then walking away, my posture drops, my abs relax, and my head drops. But the last image I saw in the mirror leads me to believe that I've addressed 
what needed to be addressed. What a mistaken belief. I have deceived myself. Warren Wearsby writes, God's word as a mirror should be used for examination that leads to transformation. But a hearer only foregoes meaningful examination. It's like glancing at your, your teeth from a distance. The piece of spinach is visible. You get that right out. But in order to see the small hunk of almond pushed back into a crevice right up front, that requires a more meaningful look. And for me, a 10x mirror. I'm not kidding. I almost brought it. Simply glancing from a distance can lead to missing what others can plainly see. The hearer only forego foregoes meaningful examination and thereby deludes herself. Secondly, the hearer only hears and forgets what they heard. Stephen Cole drew the connection uh, between the Israelites and their forgetfulness and us. But he used Psalm 106, verses 7 and 21. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled at the Red Sea. They forgot their God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Cole states, Israel didn't have a memory problem. Israel had a priority problem much like a child who's instructed to clean her room, and later you find her playing instead of cleaning, and she claims that she's forgotten about cleaning. She didn't actually lose recollection of your instruction. It just wasn't her top priority. It wasn't important to her. That's who we are when we walk away from the mirror of God's word and forget what we've seen and heard. But James doesn't leave us there. He gives us another option in verse 25. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've done, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, uh, this perfect law that gives freedom, Douglas Moo was very helpful to me, and he pointed out that James is not referring simply to the law of Moses. Rather, he's pointing out the interpretation and the fulfillment of that law in the teaching of Jesus, the Word, the divine expression, the new lawgiver. When James calls it the law of liberty, he's referring to the new covenant promise of the law written on the heart, accompanied by the work of the Spirit enabling obedience to the law for the first time. James makes another important distinction by using the nuance of a couple of words. He uses two different words to differentiate between how the man who forgets, walks away, looks into the law and forgets, that man in verse 24, and how the hearer who becomes a doer looks into the perfect law. The word for look in 25 is different than in 24. In verse 25, the word means Looking into the mirror of God means a sustained look with a ready response. A sustained look with a ready response. The word literally means stoop down and look. It's used in John 20 when Peter and John run to Christ's tomb and later in the same scene when Mary Magdalene arrives, all three stooped down low to look intently into the tomb 
This was no passing glance. They wanted to be sure of what they might see. And all three of them gained insight as a result of their scrutiny, their examination. The word examine or exam, I don't really like the word. It usually has a stressful connotation. A doctor's physical exam, way too thorough for my liking. Final exams, oh, comprehensive. They cover it all. Legal cross-examination. The word means to inspect closely, to test the condition of, to inquire into carefully. And this is my favorite one, to test or determine progress, fitness, or knowledge. We are to stoop down and look intently into God's perfect law in order to test the condition of our expressed faith. What are we expressing and what condition is our faith in? Recently, a friend invited me to join her at one of her favorite exercise classes. I reluctantly accepted for a variety of reasons, but I was reluctant to accept for a variety of reasons, but here was my main one. The class takes place in a room with floor-to-ceiling mirrors, <laughs> giving inescapable views of myself wearing clingy clothing. <laughs> this is not my idea of a good time. <laughs> but she had asked several times, and I thought, you're being rude. Just go. It didn't take long for me to realize that those mirrors weren't placed for condemnation. They were placed for correction. The mirrors correct posture and positioning for two main purposes. To provide safety, to keep me from injuring myself. And the second is to ensure that I'll receive the full benefit of the exercise. That's why those mirrors are there. And at least two dozen times during the period of an hour, I'll be certain, just certain, my arm is straight, my abs are tucked, my heels are lifted high, I'm crouched low enough, only to peek over and have my reflection reveal the reality of my position in need of constant correction. Warren Wiersbe says, when a believer spends time stooping down and looking into the mirror of God's word and seeing Christ, He's transformed. The glory on the inside, the implanted word, is revealed on the outside. The final verses of our passage give a glimpse of the glory that comes from accepting the word of truth, acting on the implanted word, and now continuing to abide by God's word. Abiding by God's word requires perpetual practice. Verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word religion or religious in this passage refers to external observances, what we do on the outside. The verse emphasizes the outward appearance, but the first part in verse 26 emphasizes 
outward appearance without the transformation of the heart. Remember Roberta in the skit the first week? We had her without the transformation of the heart, with the transformation of the heart. Yeah, verse 26 is religious practices without the transformation of the heart. And it gives the example of how you might know that's happening. An unbridled tongue, a tongue running as it pleases, without submitting to its master's will. That tongue raises a red flag in our outward practices. James calls this type of religion, this type of outward practice, useless, futile, fruitless. He calls this type of person deceived. But this James was something with his use of language. This word for deception is different from the one in verse 22. The one in verse 22 is used only twice in the New Testament. This is the more commonly used word. And it means to mislead or seduce your own heart. You're deceived. The word literally translates misleads or seduces his own heart. This person in verse 26 has declared himself or herself religious on the basis of keeping outward practices looking good, but they're not submitting to their master's will. I'm that person on a weekly basis. That's why the correction has to happen. Verse 27 declares the opposite type of religion and outward practice. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is pure before God doesn't allow us to choose between being a hearer or a doer. No. We must be hearers of the word in order to become doers of the word. And only after we hear and listen to the word is it possible for our doings to align with the word of truth. The perfect law is the source of all righteous doings. James presents two final examples of being doers of the word. It's not intended to be an exhaustive list. It's really just two broad categories. The first category is caring for orphans and widows. The category really is doing for others. Visiting, that word means to look out for, care for, express concern for. It's not just shaking their hand on a Sunday morning or sending money somewhere else to care for them. It means personally getting involved with the care. Those other things are good and must be done. But you're looking to other needs of others. Stephen Cole says, when God's word takes root in our heart, it shifts our focus from ourself to others. Seeing others and their needs and then doing something to alleviate their distress or to encourage them. Demonstrates a clear understanding of the love of Christ, the love of the word implanted within us. The second example James gives in this last verse is an example of religion that's pure before God. It's that it, it, he emphasizes that, I think this is the harder of the two, keeping oneself unstained by the world. The visiting widows and orphans or seeing other people's physical needs or their emotional needs and moving to address them, meet them, encourage them, that one comes easier. This one requires a lot of examination. 
we consistently assess our stains, remove our filthy clothing, and allow the living water of the word to wash over us. Keeping oneself unstained by the world requires examination, but never for condemnation, always for correction. The word corrects our posture before God, which is humble. The word keeps us from harming ourselves, and it affects a change in our heart that brings change to our conduct and therefore brings glory to our whole heavenly Father. That's how the word corrects us and why it corrects us, to bring glory to the Father. Matthew Henry writes, the word of God shows us our sins. It shows us what is amiss, not to condemn, but so that it can be amended. Our opening song asks some pertinent questions. Am I proof that you are who you say you are? That grace can really change a heart? Do I live like your word and love is true? Is there evidence that I've been changed? When they see me, do they see you? We don't look into the word to improve our own reflection. We look intently into the perfect law to more accurately and fully reflect the truth of the gospel. We have to ask ourselves, to what extent have our doings been amended by the implanted word? Will you pray with me? Lord, we bow our hearts. We bend our knees. O oh, Spirit, come make us humble. Make us quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Make us doers of your word. Make our hearts willing to submit our ways to your will. We rejoice in the finished work of Christ. Amen.